uh, Hoosier one, and that's Hoos, not Hoosier. So we're not Indiana Hoosier fans. Well, some of you might be. I'm not. I'm a Michigan fan. But Who's Your One is, uh, uh, is our series. And so um, this was kind of uh, put out by the North America North American Mission Board, uh, NAM, and, and uh, challenging churches to call their people to identify um, uh, one person that they could share the gospel with. Um, we started started that last week and so they send sermon slides and sermon outlines and sermon manuscripts and sermon this so so I say that because if you were to go and look at look it up you'll find similar sermons from Southern Baptist churches as to what I'm saying here it's not word for word obviously because I I make it my own but I'm just saying if you ever go and maybe you try to research my sermon you might find a few similar to these ones. Uh, that's not ordinary, but but that would be the case during uh, this series. Uh, who's your one? Uh, today we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-six. What does it mean to be on on mission? And maybe you've maybe you've thought about the mission of of your life or. Or what is the mission of the church? I think we often like to talk about the idea of, of missions without ever stopping to think of our own personal role in the mission. And this week I, I read this, which I felt was extremely helpful. It's from an article in 2001 by, by a man named David Hasselgrave. He said this, Unfortunately, evangelicals, evangelicals in mission still tend to proceed as though their major problems are methodological. They are not. They are theological. It would be to their everlasting credit if evangelicals would devote themselves, their organizations, and their conferences to frequent and thorough studies of the Christian mission as set forth in the biblical text. By its very nature, biblical mission entails clear biblical priorities. When we set agendas in accordance with human preferences and interests, the idea that we either have or obey a great commission is belied. When we redefine mission so as to encompass anything and everything the church and believers actually do or even ought to do, we surrender the distinctive priorities of the Christian mission and risk assignment of the word to the terminological um, dustbin. Rather than setting still newer agendas as some are already doing, evangelicals should first set the boundaries of the evangelical mission. Charles Spurgeon said this, Beloved friends, the Church of Christ needs a band of men and women full of enthusiasm who will go beyond others in devotion to the Lord Jesus. We need missionaries who will dare to die to carry the gospel to regions beyond. We need ministers who will defy public opinion and with flaming zeal burn away into men's hearts. We need men and women who will consecrate all that they have by daring deeds of heroic self-sacrifice. Oh, that all Christians were like this, but we must at least have some. I like I liken it to a sports world where many of us love sports and we will sit and stand and yell and shout and do the wave and do all kinds of crazy things for our favorite team. 
but we'll never step foot on the playing field and make a contribution. We're great cheerleaders, but we are not contributors. And unfortunately, the same can be said of many members of the local church. We're great at cheering, but we don't want to contribute. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. I wonder how many of us have sat on the sideline and we've been great cheerleaders for the mission of God. We've not been contributors. We've just been cheering. We profess faith in Christ but we never share that faith with anyone. We can cheer for others out on the front lines, but don't ask us to contribute in any way, shape, or form. Oh, great, here comes another guilt trip by the pastor to be sharing my faith. What I'm saying to you is that I want you to be a contributor to the mission of God. And here in Washington, it doesn't start with the masses. It begins with one. It begins with one person. If you have your Bibles, then please open them to the book of Luke chapter 5. We will begin with verse 17. And I'm praying for us today that as we read this passage of Scripture, that God will put on our heart a burden, a longing, a passion for that one. And I pray that you will see... The title of our sermon here is that friends bring friends to Jesus. Will you please stand out of respect for the word of God, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 this morning from the gospel of Luke. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, Your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, 
we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, your servants are listening to your word. May it penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning. May we be ever changed, not because we've had an encounter with one another, but because we've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, whose word has penetrated our hearts and our lives. Oh, Lord, may we even see that one today that we've committed to share the gospel. And may we do so. May your word motivate us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Before we jump into this, I want to point out a few things. First, in verse 17, we see that this is the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. He's going from place to place. As he does so, he has these encounters over and over again with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. Now, Jesus would often teach things that went completely against what they had been teaching. And so they had been putting uh, unnecessary weights around the necks of the people for salvation. And here comes Jesus, and he tells them that they're wrong in what they're doing, and then he gives the people the truth. And now look at verse 21, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, So they're saying, who is this man? Who does he think he is? Just who is Jesus anyway? And Jesus asked his disciples this very question, if you remember. He said, who do people say that I am? And then he turned to Peter and said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And this is really the most critical question for anyone to answer. Who is Jesus? I mean, we read about Jesus in a boat and the waves and the sea are raging and Jesus stands up in this boat He rebukes the storm. He tells it to be still, and it happens. The men in a boat look at each other, and they say, Who is this man? When he speaks, creation listens and obeys. Well, he is God, because only God can speak and have creation obey. I don't know if you've ever tried to speak to creation and then it just obey you. That doesn't typically happen. At least it doesn't for me. If it does for you, let's talk later. The question is a question that everyone will have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? And lastly, I want us to notice that Jesus knows our thoughts. So all over in the the news right now are all these lawsuits, etc., over Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. And now, now they're saying... Facebook was as listening to things and transcribing this. And, and, and so there's all these lawsuits going on. So like if you'd ask your, your Amazon thing, you'd say, hey, Alexa, and then she would respond to you. And, and then uh, there's all these lawsuits saying, well, then it continues to listen. Jesus does not even need to listen to our conversation because he knows our very thoughts. I love the fact that Jesus is just like, hey, I know what you're thinking. So let me just address what you're thinking. Now, with all that said, let's look at this passage a little more in depth. First, let's notice this. These men had a mission. These men had a mission. 
Why do companies and even churches have a mission statement? For example, our church's mission statement is glorifying Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, to grow in him, and to show him to others. A mission statement is there to give us some direction. That's why we have one. We perhaps have a mission for our family or a mission for our life. We've, we've set out uh, what we want to accomplish, and it gives us direction. You may not know this, but I have a mission statement or purpose statement for my life. I do this because I want my life to have some direction. So, so it's reaching the lives of people whose culture is always changing with the gospel of Jesus Christ that never changes. That's a mission statement I adopted for my life a long, long time ago. The mission is to give direction. Now, some of you, maybe you're like all into mission statements. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've had someone take a piece of wood and they're all artsy and stuff, unlike me, because I'm not artsy. And they've taken your family mission statement and they put it on a piece of wood and you hang it up in your house where everybody can see it. And maybe it's something like, you know, this family hugs and laughs and cries together or whatever it might be. I don't know, but it's to give you direction. That's why you have mission statements. Mission statements give us direction. So let's think about it for, for your company or your, or your job that you work at. If you're doing your job and you start to go outside the mission of the company, what will your boss do? Well, they say, oh, that's okay. No, right? They try to refocus you on the mission. They give you a reminder of the vision or the mission of the company. And so they may say, say uh, things are, the things you're pursuing, those are good things. But they're not the mission of our company. And that is not who we are. And so if you want to continue to pursue them, then you may want to start your own company. And so that's a subtle way of, of saying, get on board or move along, right? Instagram. Uh, some of you may not know what that is, but it's a social company organization their mission statement is this to capture and share the world's moments that's their mission statement we just went on vacation a few weeks ago we took pictures of things we saw on vacation things that maybe we thought were interesting or or funny or whatever and and we shared them with people shared them with the world some of the younger ones here know exactly what i'm talking about we take pictures. Sometimes we take pictures of our food. And we share it with the world. We're doing exactly what Instagram wants us to do. They want us to capture life moments and then share it with the world. That's their mission. Facebook has a mission. They have a mission, right? Their mission is a place for grandma to check on the grandkids. That's that's not really their mission. I was, just made that up. But... uh. Um, however, more and more of the younger generation, they're not using Facebook. Instead, they're using Instagram and Snapchat and all this other stuff. Anyways, Facebook says that they want to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. I'm not sure about all that, but that's their mission. That's what they say. Now, you know where this is leading, right? Jesus had a mission statement. We should have his mission statement memorized because he made it public for all to know when he said this in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That was the mission statement of Jesus. He came to, came to seek and to save the lost. These men in this message had a mission in this passage of Scripture. What was it that, that defined what they were doing? What was their vision? What was their mission 
What was the one thing that they were hoping for? They had a friend who was paralyzed. And they knew of only one person that had the power to heal him. And so they wanted to see their friend walk. And that's what drove them. There was nothing that was going to stand in the way of them getting their friend to Jesus. Friends bring friends to Jesus. Let me ask you a very simple question this morning. What is it that drives you? What drives you? What is it that pushes you or moves you forward in life? Is it to have a good job paying good money? Is it to be able to retire early and enjoy life? Is it to leave a good inheritance to your children or grandchildren? Those may all be good things. There may be nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with having a good job. There's nothing wrong with providing for your family. And there's nothing wrong even with providing for your family for generations to come. Maybe I just need to change the question a little. What things, spiritually speaking, drive you? What dreams do you have when it comes to God's kingdom? What do you think about spiritually? What thoughts and dreams do you have that are causing you to move beyond living for the moment and live for eternity? Do you have anything in your life where you think, God, if this does not happen, I'm not sure I can move on. What wells up inside you for eternity's sake? What drives you and pushes you forward spiritually? Do you even ask yourself spiritual questions? Parents, do you desire for your kids to come to faith in Christ? Are you doing anything as a parent to make sure that your children grasp the beauty of the gospel? Do you cry out to God for the souls of your kids? Is, is there a mission for your family? Jim Simbola, who's a former college basketball athlete and pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir or Tabernacle Church, writes this. I despaired at the thought I might let my life slip by without God showing himself mightily on my behalf. What is your mission? It was Aristotle who said, the soul never thinks without a picture. There's a picture of your life that's driving you. There's a vision that moves you. There's a mission that defines you. What is it? One pastor said this, If the size of your vision doesn't intimidate you, it's probably insulting to God. What drives you for His kingdom? What is it? Who is it? Who is that person that drives you? In this passage for these men, it was their lame friend. They wanted him to walk. And as a disciple of Christ, what is your mission? I would say we should have the mission of Christ himself. I would say that we should pray that God would use us, that the lost might find that God would use us as an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those that are far away from God would be brought near to God by faith in Christ. Listen, these men not only had a mission, but they had an eager expectation. These men had an eager expectation. We don't stop with a mission, but we must have an expectation. Look at these guys in our passage. They're not just like, hey, we got a great mission statement. Here it is. Are you ready? We believe that Jesus can make the lame walk again. That's our mission statement. Isn't it awesome? We believe that Jesus can make the lame walk again. 
and then they just stop. That's the picture of many churches today. We believe this. We're not going to do nothing to make it happen. Listen, the, the mission moved them into action. So they had a mission, which was Jesus was the only one that could do anything about their lame friend. And so they think if we can get our friend to Jesus somehow, then maybe Jesus will do what only Jesus can do. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. Did they know for sure that Jesus would heal their friend? Nope. They didn't know. There was risk involved in what they were doing, right? They're taking a chance on God. We see this throughout the Old Testament. I think of Joshua. Moses is gone. The leadership has been given to Joshua. Joshua is now in charge of leading God's people into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what is God saying? Joshua, you're going to have to trust me. When the Lord tells him to be strong and courageous, that implies something. Something's going to happen which will require Joshua to exercise strength and courage. And it's going to be scary. And so what do we know about Joshua? We know that God gave him a mission. They're going in battle against a city, Jericho. Jericho was a fortress. It was a walled city, hard to get into. And so God gives them this awesome battle plan, right? March around the city, and on the last day, you march around it, sound the trumpet, and scream. No gunpowder, no gunpowder and lead, no blowing stuff up, no modern-day warfare. March around the city, and you scream. Let me get this straight, God. We're going to march around a city, and then we're going to scream. Screaming's not really a good battle plan. But they do it, right? The walls come down. A few chapters later, they're in war. And if they're going to win, God is going to have to do something remarkable. And so what do they ask? They say, God, can you make the sun stand still? What does God do? He makes the sun stand still. We go to Elijah on Mount Carmel. One prophet of God against all these false prophets of the land. He says, you guys bring your sacrifices to the altar. And the God that answers the sacrifice, that's the one true God. So they get their sacrifices all together. And these false prophets are dancing around. They're cutting themselves. They're carrying on. Elijah, he's, he's over there mocking them, saying things like, maybe your God's on vacation. And maybe he's asleep. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you need to shout louder to your God. Maybe he's just too busy for you. Maybe God's out for a walk. They keep on doing what they're doing. And it's really, read it. It's pretty depressing, to be honest with you. And Elijah is in like, it's my turn. Let me show you the power of the one true God. And he takes a sacrifice. He puts it on the altar. He puts water on it. In fact, let's just make sure that everyone knows this sacrifice is soaked in water. Make sure the water is flowing all around it. And then, and then he prays, O oh Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your 
word, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you've turned their hearts back. And what does God do? Sends fire and gobbles everything up. And the people fall on their faces, and they say, the Lord, he is God. Or how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel chapter 3. They refuse to bow to the king and they, and they sit there. They're, they're, we're not going to bow to the statue because we worship the one true God. And Nebuchadnezzar the king says, I've heard you refuse to bow down. And they say, we're not going to bow down to you. And so what does the king do? If you don't bow, you're going to be thrown into the fire furnace and you will die because the flames will consume you. Look at the king, and they exercise civil disobedience, and they say, We will not bow to you because our hearts belong to the one true God, and we believe God can save us. That takes some faith, right? But the best part about that is what they said next. Because they said, We believe that God can save us. But then these famous three words, but if not. So let me get this straight. We believe he can deliver us. But if he doesn't, if he chooses not to, we still will not bow down. Wow. Let me me remind you of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 39. We recently went through the whole book of Hebrews. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Then following, we have Hebrews chapter 11, right? The the hall of faith. And we're reminded of all these people who saw God shut the mouths of lions and God do things like, like that are humanly impossible. But you know what else we read about, if you remember it? We read about people moving forward in faith and being sawed in two. And guess what? The reward was the same. They all stepped out in faith. They all took a risk. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time that you risked anything for God? Not for yourself. When was the last time you risked anything for God? When was the last time you actually stepped out in faith? These guys had an eager expectation that their friend would walk, but they didn't know for sure Jesus was going to do anything. Maybe Jesus will do it. Maybe he won't do it. We can just, if we could just get him there. Now, here's the thing. As believers, we don't just have a hunch. We have a hope that Jesus is who he says he is. He can do what only Jesus can do. We see it all through Scripture. We see it time and time again. And that eager expectation should cause you and I to go forward. It should move you and I into action. Listen, if all the Scripture is just trapped in your head and you know it, but it never makes its way to your heart, You're simply consumed with information. The gospel transforms the mind and the heart, and it moves your feet forward. 
the gospel moves us forward. We're not just cheerleaders. We are competitors. We step onto the playing field. We contribute to the kingdom of God going forward. But don't miss this because not everything was smooth sailing for these guys. Because there was an obstacle, right? And that's what we see next. These men encountered an obstacle. And we all encounter obstacles. In fact, I bet if you've ever identified one person that you want to share the gospel with, like we challenged you to do last week, I want to challenge you to pick up the devotional we have, and we have some bookmarks down there for you to grab if you haven't got one already. If you've you've tried to share, you've faced obstacles. I've had moments when I want to share Jesus with someone. There's an obstacle there. There's a barrier, and sometimes it keeps me from doing it. These guys are trying to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and they're carrying him on a mat, but there's a huge crowd. They can't even get into the house. Now, here's my question. How many of us would have stopped right there? We got there, and there's this massive crowd, and we're like, well, we tried. And we try to make that sound all spiritual, right? You know how we make it sound spiritual? This is how many Christians make circumstances sound spiritual. Well, the Lord must be closing the door. (laughs) Sounds real spiritual, right? Well, the Lord must be closing the door. I guess the Lord doesn't want it to happen. We should probably just forget about it. Not do it anymore. We should never try this again. He must be closing the door. And for many of us, we have these little Christian sayings. We like to say, well, the Lord opened the door. We think that that because an open door, you know what that is? That's a path of least resistance. So for many of us, we're like, well, Lord, I will go through an open door because that's easy. And we'll even say prayers like that, right? Lord, open a door for me. And what, what, you know what we're praying? This is what we're praying. When we say, Lord, please open this door for me, we're praying, Lord, make it easy. Can you imagine if, if the Apostle Paul behaved that way? If he was like, well, I'm only going to go through open doors. According to our definition of open doors, right? I mean, he would have never done anything. Well, that door is shut. That door, every place I turn, the door is shut. We'd be missing a good portion of the New Testament. Does being flogged and beaten and thrown into prison and shipwrecked, does that sound like an open door to you? In fact, people pleaded with Paul, Paul, don't go to Rome. If you go, they're going to kill you. Paul's like, yeah, I know. I know that's what you're saying is going to happen. I'm going anyway. Sometimes when the door is closed, you need to go on the roof and start digging now that's spiritually speaking okay so I don't want anybody showing up at my house and like start tearing my roof off what I'm saying to you is sometimes you need to improvise you need to find another way to bring your friend to Jesus sometimes you may have to kick the door down but don't just raise the white flag and say oh I guess the door is closed I'm going to go on my merry little way because obviously the Lord shut this door several years ago I felt the leading to 
to go on a mission trip to Haiti. I was excited. I was a student pastor at the time, and I thought, well, I need to take some teens with me to Haiti, and I, I, I need to get them this exposure, and I began to plan and prepare a trip, and, and uh, I walked the teens through how to write letters and raise funds for a mission trip, and I stink at administration, but I logged every single fund that came in and who it came from and who paid for the trip. And I kept, I kept everything to make sure that they got their, uh, make sure that everyone got their money turned in and always reminding them and doing that sort of thing. But, you know, during that, I got a call from a church. And it turned out to be this church. And I became the pastor here before I got to take that trip to Haiti. And I could have said, well, God, I guess you closed the door. I guess I'm done. I didn't feel that at all. Instead, I stayed in touch with the team that went. I emailed back and forth with them. I called the pastor and the new student pastor that they had hired, and I asked if they felt how they felt if I went with them. And then I had the awesome experience of taking my daughter with me. And I've made more than one trip. I've seen lives surrender to Christ. I've shared the gospel with voodoo priests. I've seen God do amazing things. Why? Because I didn't say, well, the door was closed. That's the answer. If there was an obstacle, I found a way around it. Listen, I can share with you incredible stories about trips that I've been on. What I want us to know and to understand is that we will encounter obstacles in the way of you sharing Christ. You're going to face obstacles. Let me share just one. One year, when I went to Haiti, I was taking a small team and going to the mountains in the middle of nowhere to a church whose land was connected to a voodoo temple's land. The night before we were to leave, as I lay in my bed, I had a sensation of being choked. I woke up. I could not breathe. I finally was able to gather my exposure and spend time in prayer. That day, we were on our way up the mountain. The truck we were in stalled and started to roll backwards down the mountain. We all bailed out of the truck. We were later told that accidents occur there fairly regularly because they would just go off the side of the mountain. We got to the church. The pastor wasn't there. Several hours later, he shows up. When he shows up, he tells us that we would pray three times a day for an hour each and every time. One of those times, like 4 a.m. I'm not good at 4 a.m. I was then told that we would be walking to a nearby village through the mountains to go witness to this voodoo priest. That night before we left, we were bit up by mosquitoes, but we walked the distance, and we got there. And the voodoo priest was not even there at the temple. And we could have said, man, all these doors are closing. Instead, he was out in the field where they farmed. Haiti was in the middle of the drought. We went to the field. We found him. I share the gospel with this man. And at one point in his frustration, when I told him I knew who controlled the weather, he grabbed his machete and I thought my life was about to end. We finally came to a close and I asked if there was any way that I could pray for this voodoo priest. He said I could pray that it would rain. And I said, if it rains, will you believe? And he said, yes. 
Haiti's in a drought. I prayed, God, send rain. And we walked back to the church. That night, as we prepared to gather together, my team comes running, and they say, you have to see this. We stood in the church building, and we watched as a storm rolled over the mountains in Haiti, and God opened the heavens, and it rained for hours. You will be faced with obstacles. Don't you dare surrender. Don't you dare raise the white flag. Instead, you dig a hole in the roof. You kick the door down. You do whatever it takes. Don't you dare be afraid of ridicule or scorn or being made fun of. Don't you dare allow the fear of man to be more powerful than your God. Don't allow the fear of people not liking you keep you from sharing. Just share Christ. Kick the door open and go for it. Because friends bring friends to Jesus no matter what it takes. Lastly, let's notice this. These men got more than they bargained for. If we look at the verses, we understand that Jesus knew what they were thinking before they even asked. Starting with verse 22, Jesus, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Isn't this precisely what his friends wanted? They wanted their friend to walk. And in verse 25, it says that immediately he got up and picked up the mat that he'd been laying on and went home praising God. How often do we read this and we just kind of glaze over it as if it's something ordinary? There is nothing ordinary about this. A man who was paralyzed stood up and walked. This is what they were hoping for, and it happened, and everyone's amazed, and they give praise to God. Now, don't miss what it says in verse 26. An amazement sees them all. They glorify God. They're filled with awe and saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, when it says awe, it's not like, like we often think of awe, like we see something amazing and we're like, wow, that was awesome. You know, like maybe if you're watching a talent show or something like that, and someone has an amazing talent, and you're like, that's amazing. That's not what this all is. No, this is, this is like being filled with a holy reverence or fear because you saw God do what only God can do. This is so mind-blowing that I can't believe what I just saw response. It's one of total reverence for who God is. We can't settle for the mundane when Jesus offers the miraculous. And here's what I want, want to say to you, church. Some of you are stuck in a rut. And you're settling for the mundane of everyday life. You do the same thing over and over and over again. 
And I want to challenge you to ask God to do what only God can do in your life. I'm challenging you that friends bring friends to Jesus. And the beauty of this passage is that these guys thought what their friend needed most was to be able to walk. They could only see the external. And that's what mo- that, and they thought, well, that's what's most important. But Jesus, he sees the internal. And what does Jesus say first? Your sins are forgiven. And then he says, take up your mat and walk. Oh, to understand that the greatest need that anyone has the greatest need that your one has is not some sort of external fixing. I grow so weary of external fixing in my life. I don't need to be fixed externally. The greatest need is a heart change. I need my soul to be crushed so that God can come and mold me into the man that he wants me to be. God is not looking for us to have some sort of external modifications. He's after a life that has changed. You see, the internal is the most important part of this passage, not the external circumstances. Jesus does his greatest work on the internal. He does the greatest work on our heart. And listen, if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, at some point, you and I were that paralytic on the mat. At some some point, you and I were that person. Some of you may be that person today, this morning, and you're you're the paralytic on the mat and perhaps today for this first time you realize that the reason your friends invite you to church or the reason that people talk to you about Jesus is because they think that you need Jesus and you would be right that's why they are inviting you to church you see Jesus we believe is the greatest hope for a lost world he's not the message of hope he is the hope And we want lost people to taste and know that the Lord is good. And at some point, every person that's a Christian was this paralytic on the mat. And someone in your life looked at you and said, My mission is to see that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they were eager and they were expectant that God could only do what God can do in your life. And you know what? They probably faced some obstacles. But they kept persisting. And when the door was shut, they dug a hole on the roof. And you eventually came to Christ. Who's your one? Is it a parent? Is it a friend? Is it a child? Who's your one? Jesus said to his disciples that if they were going to follow him, they would be on mission. They would have a new direction. And it would be one of the defining characteristics of every single believer. And he was right. You remember from last week? Follow me from where you are, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is telling them, you have been fishing for a long time, but I'm going to to show you something greater, and it's people. It is life transformation in the lives of people. Listen, church, it's time to get off the sideline. Stop cheering. It's time to start fishing. It's time to do something. It's time to put our faith into practice. It's time to start fishing or stop calling yourself a believer if you refuse to fish 
then you're not a fisherman. And if you're not a fisherman or woman, then you're not a believer. Let me read to you a story from People Sharing Jesus by Daryl Robinson. May it convict us all. Now, it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. And in fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. The fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in the meetings and talked about their call to fish. The abundance of fish and how they might go about the task of fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation, and they declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of every single fisherman. And continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing, for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman. And every fisherman should fish. But the one thing they didn't do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting, regularly they organized the board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. They hired staff and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, defend fishing, and decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members, they didn't fish. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. And over the years, courses were offered in the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the reactions of fish and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given the fishing license that they were hoping for. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with many fish. And many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and prayed over and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way. And so the fish would know the difference between a good and a bad fisherman. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were was surely enough. Now, it's true that many fishermen sacrificed. They put up with all kinds of difficulties, and some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every single day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, yet they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen at all. No matter how much they claimed to be, 
Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? Or more plainly stated, is one really following if he isn't fishing? Are you fishing? Call yourself a follower? But you've never fished? You're not a follower. If you're not fishing, you're not a fisherman. You say, well, pastor, that's, that's hard words. Take it up with Jesus. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Not follow me and study fishing. Not follow me and you might become a fisherman. Not follow me and one day when you're ready, you will be a fisherman. Not follow me and you have the right characteristics, you'll fish. Not follow me and if everything goes right, you'll fish. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so if you're not following and you're not fishing and if you're not fishing you're not a follower and if you're not a follower you are not a Christian it's time to start fishing a time of talking about fishing and studying about fishing and seeing exactly how we are to fish and learning the habits of fish we need to stop and start fishing and it starts with one who's your one Who is the one person that you want to see God do what only God can do in their life?